Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 19 tonight. The title of the message, The Crucified Savior. John chapter 19. In this chapter, John describes in just three verses the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for our sin. And as we look at this event anew, I hope that we'll have a growing appreciation and gratitude for what Jesus did for us on the cross, and also that we'll be challenged to live a sacrificial life to serve him, to share the gospel with others. John chapter 19, the verses are 16, 17, and 18. John 19, 16. Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away, and he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. There are four things that strike my attention in these verses. First of all, he was delivered. Who delivered the Savior to be crucified? And as we think about that, you think, who is responsible for his death, for his crucifixion? Notice the first few words, then delivered he, speaking of Pilate there, delivered he him, the him is Jesus. And throughout the trial, Pilate, the Roman governor, tried to place uh, placate, actually, an angry crowd. They were the ones who wanted to put Jesus to death. Israel was under Roman rule. They couldn't put anyone to death, but Rome could. And so Pilate knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong. He really wanted to bring the case to a, a peaceful close. Most politicians do. Let's just get through this. His wife sent word to warn him about a disturbing dream that she had. Matthew tells us that in Matthew 27, 19. When he, sat down, when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. It was a divinely given dream for her uh, to verify the fact in Pilate's mind that Christ was innocent. Pilate announced his verdict, that he found no fault in Christ. In fact, he repeated that verdict three times. In John 18, verse 38, we find the words, I find no fault in him. In John 19, 4, I find no fault in him. In John 19, 6, I find no fault in him. He made four different attempts to persuade the Jews or get them to realize that Christ was innocent and to drop the charges that were brought against him, let him go free. First, he offered to allow a criminal to go free, which was a custom. John 18, 40, they cried all again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. They chose Barabbas over Christ. They chose one who took rather than the one who gave. All through the scriptures, we, we see how Christ gave. In Isaiah 56, 50 verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. 
Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Galatians 2.20, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Next, Pilate scourged Christ. And I think that was done to try to appeal to their sympathy. Just a human heart would look at that picture and realize he suffered enough. In John 19, 1, it says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. He hadn't yet pronounced the sentence of death on Christ. And I think, again, he's, he's appealing to the, to the sympathy of the human heart. He hoped that when the Jews saw Jesus suffering, they would say, that's enough punishment. Crucifixion isn't necessary. But when they saw the results of the scourging, they wanted more. Third, Pilate sought to release him in John 19, 12. From thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But they said, if you do, you're no friend of Caesar's. And he make a, made a final appear, appeal in John 19, 14, where he says, behold your king. John is the only one who records this ironic exchange. Pilate didn't recognize that Jesus was the Jews' king. They would have opened the, that would have opened the door for a rebel against the Roman rule. He would never instigate that kind of disloyalty to Caesar. And yet what a disappointing insight into the human heart as we watch Israel's reaction and rejection of Christ. The Jews said something that proved they would rather submit to the authority of Rome than to crown Jesus as their king. They cried, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate had a part in delivering Christ to be crucified. That's what we're seeing in, in John 19, 16. Then delivered he him, therefore. Very specific in the text. But Pilate was not the one in control of all these events that are taking place. What about the Roman soldiers? Were they responsible for delivering Christ up to be crucified? The phrase at the end of verse 16 is referring to the soldiers. They took Jesus and led him away. They're the ones who had the military authority, the strength, the power to lead him to death, to perform that torture of crucifixion. They were the ones who scourged the Lord Jesus with the whip. They were the ones who cut stripes into his back. With their hands, they tore his beard from his face. With a mock scepter, they drove the thorny crown into his head. With open hand, they beat him. And with mouths that God created to praise him, they spat upon the Savior. They cursed him. John 19.23 says, when the soldiers, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments. That was part of the benefit of being on the crucifixion detail. They drove the nails into his hands and feet. They lifted him on the cross. They pierced his side. These soldiers obviously were actively involved in the crucifixion. But again, they were not in control of these events any more than Pilate was. Can we point to the crowd and say that they were the ones responsible? After all, they're the ones who persuaded Pilate to allow the crucifixion. 
He made attempts to free Christ, as we looked at, but they repeatedly cried, crucify him, crucify him. Matthew, or Mark 5, 13 and 14. And they cried out again, crucify him. So they've already said it once. Then Pilate said unto them, why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out, the more exceedingly, crucify him. And I can hear the, the chants again, echoing again and again, crucify him. Rome allowed conquered nations to retain some of their laws. And now the Jews brought up the law against blasphemy. In Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16, it says, And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger, as he that is born in the land. When he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. The only way that Jesus could bring blasphemy against the name of the Lord, the character of the Lord, would have been if he were not himself equal with God. John 5.18, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. But he is equal with God. The Bible is very clear, Philippians 2.6, who being in the form of God, that internal reality, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was God. He is God. So was it Pilate who was responsible? In a way. The soldiers, perhaps. The crowd, yes. In fact, we're all responsible for the death of Christ because he died for the sins of all the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. We're all responsible. But really, when you think of that, the crucifixion was not orchestrated by man. All of these groups of people or individuals that we've looked at so far are not responsible as far as who is ultimately behind the scenes. Behind all of this is the divine plan of God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we see that, that tension in Scripture. And when we think of that, who killed Jesus? Well, obviously, our sins were the ones that, that put him there and nailed him to the cross. He died for us. But it was also the plan of God. Acts 2.23 says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And that would seem that God is the one who had this plan. But then in the second half of the verse, Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Oh, that we are responsible for his, for his death because of our sin. But God was the one who orchestrated this. It was precipitated by his mercy. It was planned from eternity. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 tells us that the plan of salvation through the blood of Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. God had this plan in his heart before the world was created. God was the one who delivered his own son. Isaiah prophesied it in Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. 
When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. And in verse 11, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. It was the only way that our sins could righteously be atoned for. The perfect sacrifice, the sinless sacrifice, the Son of God. Paul wrote about it in Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son, speaking of God, but delivered him up for us all. Who delivered Christ to be crucified? It was God. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? John also tells us the wonderful truth in the well-known verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. As we think about the unity of the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Spirit, all one God, we see another interesting verse. We could apply Christ himself as God delivered himself to be crucified. It was a voluntary sacrifice. John chapter 10, verse 18. He said, no man taketh it from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. He was delivered because of our sin, but by his Father, by himself. In verse 17 of John 19, we come to the next thought tonight. He carried his cross. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Why did he carry this, this cross, this instrument of torture? There are historical reasons that a criminal carries his cross. He would carry it, either the beam or the entire cross, the cross piece alone or the entire cross itself, as a sign of his guilt. He would actually carry it from the place where he was sentenced to the place where he was killed, punished, executed. The path that Jesus took was about a mile. It's now called the Via Dolorosa, the Latin for the way of sorrow or grief or suffering. Who helped him carry his cross? John is the only writer that says that Jesus bore his cross. The other gospel writers mention Simon who was called upon to carry the cross. Well, since the Bible is infallible, inerrant, there has to be an explanation for this apparent contradiction. And it's, it's found in taking all of the gospel writers and saying each one wrote from his own perspective, they're all true. And so as we do that, we combine those words and we, we understand that Jesus must have started out carrying the burden of the cross and then along the way, Simon was asked to carry it for him. In Mark chapter 15, verse 21, it says, And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. We're not certain why Simon was called on to bury the cross. We can only speculate. I would imagine it's because they wanted this whole process sped up. Because... This had to take place so that the corpses could be taken down by sunset. John 19.31, this was a preparation of the, of the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was a high day. And they besought Pilate that the legs of the criminals might be broken, that they might be taken away. Of course, the legs of Christ were not broken. He was already pronounced dead. There's an interesting picture 
from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 6, that I think is symbolic in its prophecy. As Abraham took Isaac to Mount Moriah, do you remember who carried the wood for that burnt sacrifice? Isaac himself. He carried the wood for the sacrifice, and he was to be the sacrifice. And just so, Christ carried the cross to Golgotha, and he was the sacrifice. He went to Golgotha. Golgotha is Aramaic. It's uh, the place of a skull. Calvary is the Greek word that comes from the Latin word cranium, which is also a a reference to the, the skull. It was probably called this either because of the bones of the dead that were left there or on the bare rock that looked like a skull. How many people go to Gordon's Calvary today and when you look at that face of that rock, it looks like there are eyes and even a mouth there. Those, those were probably not there at the time of the crucifixion. Those were probably erosions that have, it might not look the same as it did then. But it was named the place of the skull. There, has been, there have been two different suggestions as to where Jesus was crucified. In the fourth century, um, <clears throat> the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built on the site where Helena, the mother of Emperor Constantine, um, thought that the crucifixion took place. And people go there, and they say that was the place. But then uh, Gordon, General Charles Gordon, made a case for another location, and that's called, in the 19th century, he did some survey work there. And that place is called Gordon's Calvary, and I think it's a better indication of where it took place. The third point, verse 18, he was crucified. Where they crucified him. Crucifixion was not a Roman invention. It was originated by the Phoenicians or by the Persians, but the Romans were the one who perfected it. Roman citizens, for the most part, were protected from this cruel punishment. It was reserved for the lowest of criminals. When I come to verse 18, I'm struck by the simplicity of the statement. Where they crucified him. Gabeline writes, It is noteworthy that no inspired pen enters into a detailed description of the crucifixion itself. They crucified him there. It was indescribable. F.F. Bruce says the same thing. John describes the horror that was crucifixion in a single word. As in the case of the scourging, he simply mentions the fact and passes on. Popular piety, both Protestant and Catholic, has often tended to make a great deal of the sufferings of Jesus, to reflect on what was done and to dwell on the anguish that he suffered. None of the Gospels do this. The evangelists record the fact and let it go at that. The death of Jesus for men was their concern. They make no attempts to play on the heartstrings of their readers. I'm sure you have heard and read of descriptive accounts of the crucifixion. Physicians describing the pain of the torturous death. But the details of that death are not recorded here. 
The purpose, as we read it, is not to evoke sympathy for the sufferings of Christ. There have been others in history who have died tragic, painful deaths. Some have even died in sacrifice of themselves so that others would live. But no one else took upon him the sins of the world. And that's the focus of the scriptures. Far greater than the pain of the scourging, the nails, the torture of the cross, was the pain of taking our sins upon himself. What was it like to bear the sins of the world? Wayne Grudem writes, In our own experience as Christians, we know something of the anguish we feel when we know we have sinned. The weight of guilt is heavy on our hearts, and there is a bitter sense of separation from all that is right in the universe, an awareness that something that in in a very deep sense ought not to be. In fact, the more we grow in holiness as God's children, the more intensely we feel this instinctive revulsion against evil. You think of it. We feel that way as sinners when we sin. Think of Jesus, completely holy, sinless. How great must have been the pain taking on him that bitter cup, the sins of the world, being forsaken by God. One writer of a commentary in Isaiah, F.C. Jennings, I quote him often, He describes the horror of bearing sins in his commentary on Isaiah 53, particularly the verses 3 through 6. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And then verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he writes this, F.C. Jennings, that God... The very God from whom every one of us has wandered afar should himself cause the iniquity of us all to meet as myriads of foul black sewers might meet in one awful, rushing, roaring, filthy, malodorous flood emptying themselves at one spot on him, the object of his own heart. And then he adds, can any keep away from such a God as that? He was crucified. The last thought, he was numbered with transgressors. And two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. Luke is the gospel writer who tells us about the salvation of the thief on the right, the unrepentant thief on the left. Matthew refers to them as robbers. Mark calls them criminals. Mark points out the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus was numbered among the transgressors. Numbering can mean several things. I think it probably means that he was identified or he lived among sinners. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He was numbered. He came to live among sinners, sinless, and yet numbered with us as a human. 
It also means that he was identified with sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. What are the pronouns there? For he, God, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, Christ, and then he finishes that verse for 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we might, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He interceded to save sinners. It says he made intercession for the transgressors. He prayed for them. He prayed for us. In Luke 23.34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a statement, the first statement of seven that Christ made on the cross. In that prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, does not excuse our sin based on ignorance. We don't know. We didn't know what we did. We're innocent, therefore. No. It makes forgiveness available for those who call upon him. And that's what one of the thieves did. Luke 23 Verses 42 and 43. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He was numbered with transgressors. As we think about the crucifixion, as we commemorate that death for us, on a monthly basis here at Grace with the communion service. How does that affect you? I've often used the illustration of Carl Sandburg's experience as he wrote the biography on Abraham Lincoln. He was interviewed and he said that he had done a lot of research and so much time studying the life of Lincoln that as he came to write about the assassination of the president by John Wilkes Booth, when he hit the keys of the typewriter, it was as if he heard the shot from the gun being fired. And Sandberg says, I fell on my knees and shook uncontrollably. He had spent so much time researching Lincoln that he felt in that moment as if his dearest friend had been assassinated. I think that's how we should feel when we reflect on Christ's work on Calvary. This is more than an author describing the death of a human. This is the very Son of God who died to take away our sins. I hope you've come to know him more with your reading of scripture, with your study of the word of God, with your walk with Christ, that when you consider Calvary, you see your best friend who has died there for you. How well you know him will affect how you respond to his death tonight. You cannot stand at the foot of the cross and remain unmoved. 